We're beginning a series, as uh, Alex said, called Teach Us to Pray. We're going to be focusing in on the Lord's Prayer and taking time to unpack that over the next several weeks. There's so much there for us to, to see. But I want to start with the idea of many of us were taught prayers to say, even as young children. Perhaps you were, if you grew up in a home where, where prayers were said. Maybe at dinner time you said something like, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food, right? Maybe you had that one. Anybody have that one in your home? Yeah, some of you remember that one. Or a slightly less respectful version, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. You know, maybe that was the way that you did it there. <clears throat> At bedtime, perhaps you prayed with your kids, or maybe they, your parents prayed with you, now I lay me down to sleep, right? I pray the Lord my soul to keep. So far, so good, but I always had trouble with the next line. <laughs> if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. You can almost see the parent going out saying, good night, sweet dreams, we'll see you tomorrow, maybe. <laughs> Talk about nightmares. Maybe you grew up in a Catholic church or faith setting and you learned Hail Mary full of grace and what goes on after that. Maybe that was something that you recited or said often in your upbringing. If you've been a part of AA or another type of support group, you're probably familiar with the serenity prayer, right? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Even people who don't believe in God have been known to pray. Sometimes we call these foxhole prayers. People perhaps who are in very dangerous situations who cry out saying, God, if you rescue me, if you save me, I'll, and then you fill in the blank. I'll give my life to you. I'll serve you. I'll, I'll do whatever it is. And sometimes those have indeed happened. There are stories of people who in those situations have experienced that and turned their lives over to serving the Lord. Prayer is probably the most common practice across all religions. It stems from our desire to connect with something greater than ourselves. We recognize that we are not it, or at least many of us do, and we reach out for something greater. As Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in the human heart. We know there is something more, something that we are missing, and a part of us longs to connect with that, and prayer is often a way to express that desire. The story of the Bible affirms that there is indeed a God. In fact, it assumes it in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it tells us that that God is a personal being who made everything and yet is outside of his creation. He is described as totally unique, separate or different from us in many ways, and yet wants a relationship with us. In fact, according to the Bible, we will not find the fulfillment we are looking for, we were designed for, apart from a relationship with Him. And any good relationship, as hopefully you're aware, involves communication. If you don't use communication in your relationship, you probably don't have a good relationship. Good relationships involve communication. And God has communicated to us, He's communicated to us through what He has made, He's communicated to us through His Word that we're looking at this morning, or we will be looking at. And he's also communicated most fully through his son, Jesus, who came to show us what God is like in a very tangible way. Now, we don't live during a time when Jesus walked this earth, and so as followers of Jesus, we do have the Spirit who guides us into truth as we seek God. So if this is how we, God communicates with us, then how do we communicate with God? 
The word most often used to describe this practice is prayer. Prayer is simply at its most basic form, talking to God, sometimes out loud, sometimes in our heads. It's us desiring to reach out and communicate with God in some way. We find the practice of prayer throughout the Bible. We even have recorded prayers, including ones from David, Hannah, Nehemiah, Jonah, Mary, the Apostle Paul, and many more. We even have one from Jesus himself recorded in John chapter 17 where he has a conversation with his father. And then we have what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, and it was common in that day for religious leaders or rabbis to teach their followers different practices and things, including how to pray. The religious leaders of the day did it. John the Baptist did it. And so when Jesus' disciples saw him regularly conversing with his father, there was something that struck them that they approached him and said, would you teach us to pray? We want to be able to have communication like you have with your father. And so he did. The Lord's Prayer is only about 50 words long or so in our Bibles. It's been said by individual followers of Jesus and by gatherings of believers for centuries. In many churches, as Alex said, it's recited every week. And like anything that's repeated often, it can lose its meaning to us. It's, we can just begin saying words and not really think about what it is that we're saying. And so what I desire for us to do is as we take our time and walk through this prayer, that we would remind ourselves of what it is that Jesus taught us. It's so vitally important that we understand. Because as we seek to understand what Jesus wanted us to see and to do This can truly transform our communication and our relationship with God. So you ready? Let's dive in, all right? We're going to start with the prayer itself. It's found in Matthew 6 and also in Luke 11. It's going to be on the screen, and I'm going to ask you, if you would, to read it out loud with me. Now, I know for some of you growing up, you learn this in different ways with maybe different words or language. There's an ending to it that I'm not going to include here that some of you know. So let's just read this part together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, some observations, if you could leave that up there for a minute, uh, Lindy. Just after the address, the Our Father in Heaven, kind of who it is we're talking to, and we'll get to that in just a minute, the prayer naturally divides into two sections, and you can notice that by the pronouns. In the first half of the prayer, verses 9 and 10 in Matthew chapter 6, it consists of three your statements, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. The focus is not on us, it's on God, and that's where we need to start. In direct opposition to the religious leaders, if you pray, I'm sorry, if you read in Matthew 6, the section right before this prayer, Jesus is it's in the Sermon on the Mount where he's giving instructions to his followers of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, what kingdom living looks like. And right before he teaches them how to pray, he talks about the religious leaders and how they pray. And basically what he says is, don't do that. <laughs> don't pray in such a way that draws attention to yourself, that makes prayer about you. And we may read that and we're like, well, I don't do that. I don't try to go and find people and pray in front of them as as flowery as I can to draw attention to myself. I, yeah, I don't do that. But how many times do I come just me and God and I make prayer all about me? 
I think we all can fall into that trap. And we need to remind ourselves the whole first half of this prayer really has very little to do with us. It has everything to do with the God that we're talking to. In the second half of the prayer, the focus does shift. Instead of your pronouns, we see a lot of us, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. Again, grouped into three statements. The prayer is a simple, balanced, memorable poem. That's really what it is. And many of us have memorized it. It starts with to whom this prayer is addressed. And this is such an important question as we begin to enter into the prayer itself. And we talk about who is it that we are praying to. That's just such an important question to stop and ask ourselves. Do we really recognize when we pray who we're praying to? Have we identified that? Across this world today, there are people praying to all kinds of different deities, gods, people, whatever the case may be. And as we, as who claim to be, many of us followers of Jesus, do we really understand who it is that we are praying to? Jesus wants to identify that right out of the gate. Prayers were often done in such a way in that time as to get the deity's attention often accompanied with offerings of food or elaborate rituals, including music or dancing or some form. And there is none of that here. Those things still exist around the world today. You still can see those. The kind of an attempt to get God's attention. But that's not what Jesus does. Because our address of God is not to get his attention. He is already well aware of what is going on in our individual lives as well as in this world but it's to remind us of who we're talking to. It's to remind us who is it that we are talking to. Now, of all the titles Jesus could have used for God, and he could have used a number of them. You go through the Old Testament, there's a number of names for God. He chooses the term Father. He chooses the term Father. It's a relational term. It's a familial, a family term. It was used in the Old Testament, but not often. It was not a common reference to God. Jesus used it all the time, and in so doing, he was sending a message. For many Old Testament or, or Jewish people at that day, they, they would have felt saying Father was too familiar or too informal. They needed to approach God with more respect, and as we'll see, that is important, but of all the identifiers that Jesus could choose to use, and not to the exclusion of others, not at all, but in this particular prayer, he chooses to say our Father. Now, we may have heard someone say, or, or maybe you've interacted with this kind of uh, saying or belief, we are all God's children. Maybe you've heard that, or, or maybe that's something that you believe. And I think while it is true that he created each of us, is aware of each of us, and he loves each of us, that's true. We are not born into his family. We're not born into a familial relationship with God. And so what does it mean for us to have God become our Father? When the Bible uses the term Father, it speaks to the special relationship that God wants to have with us. He wants us to be a part of His forever family. But because of our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion against God, we are separated from Him. The Bible uses words like separated, excluded, foreigners to describe us. But Jesus came to restore us, to make a way for us to be forgiven and adopted into God's family, where we can truly call him our Father. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. That's what you were. You were separated from relationship with God. But because he's talking to people who have placed their faith in Jesus, but now you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. We can become a part of God's family. And once we have come to, so I think the, one of the very first questions we should ask ourselves is, can I refer to God as my father? Do I have a relationship with him through Jesus? That's the first thing we have to wrestle with. When I address God as, as our father, is he really my father? Have I come to the point of understanding my need for G, what Jesus did to cover my sin, to pay for my sin so that I could be forgiven and restored in a relationship with God? Jesus taught us to pray using the term Father because he wants us to evaluate our relationship with God. Can we call him Father? And his desire is that we would. That as followers of Jesus, we are welcome to do that because that is true for us. Now in teaching us to pray this way, Jesus also wanted to show us that God is not a, a vending machine or an angry landlord. It's not somebody that if we do the right things, put the right money in, and push the right buttons, God is obligated to give us whatever it is that we want. And yet sometimes we can approach God that way. If I do this and do this, and I've been good today, and then I come to God, and then he's kind of obligated to be good back to me, I'll, I'll get something from him. We may not think of it quite that way, but quite honestly, we can, we can approach that way. I mean, come on. Who of us as kids didn't butter up our parents at times trying to get a better result for something that we wanted, right? I don't know if any of you got called out for that. It's like, what, who are you today? What do you want? Because you're being way too nice and way too obedient, right? And sometimes we can almost approach God with that. I'll, I'll do the right things, I'll be good, and therefore, you know, you're going to give me kind of what I'm looking for, right? But that's not who God is. Or this idea of an angry landlord. You know, we know we live in his space, he owns it all, but all he really wants is us to pay our rent on time and not break anything. <laughs> and if we do, he's going to be angry and kick us out. <laughs> You know, and sometimes we can have that, that view of God. And there's many other views that we can have of God that are incorrect, that are not accurate. And Jesus wants to correct those and saying, no, he's our father. And so what does a good father do? First of all, he's present. He's present to guide us and comfort us. He promises never to leave us or turn away from us. A good father also disciplines us always with the desire to see us restored and brought back. He wants better for us than sometimes we can even see for ourselves. When we admit our wrong and turn from it, he forgives us. He refuses to hold things against us, even though he has every right to. In summary, we address a father who unapologetically leads. He will not compromise his position. He unapologetically leads. He is the leader and sacrificially loves his children. That's who God is. That's our Father. A.W. Tozer, who's an author of a book called The Pursuit of God, another one called The Knowledge of the Holy, both really good books to read, said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And whether you agree or disagree with that statement, it, I understand what he's getting at, I think. Because everything else flows out of your understanding of God. Everything else, every decision you make will be somehow connected to your view of God. 
Whether you try to manipulate him is directly related to your view of God. Whether you just try to hide from him, you're afraid of him, that directly is from your view of God. But God wants us to view him as Father. And so the question is this morning to start in this prayer, as we start, our Father, how do you view God? How do you view him? And does your view fit with what Scripture teaches of who he is? And we're going to see a little bit more of that as we go in. Or is there an adjustment that you need to make right out of the chute? When you come to him, the very first thing in approaching this God and calling him our Father, does that somehow correct for you a misperception of who he is? And I think that's a challenge for us right out of the gate. Sometimes, quite honestly, I view God as someone to make my life comfortable and not get in my way. You know what, God, if you could just make my life comfortable and just not interfere too much, I'm good. You know, I'll keep serving you. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my thing. I'll do what you want, sort of, <laughs> as long as it doesn't interfere with my comfort, right? And sometimes that's our view, but I'm just telling you that that's not who God is. He will, and I think he likes to mess with our comfort, because he wants us to move to something more deeply fulfilling than what we often look to to make our lives comfortable. Maybe we view them as a safety net or an insurance policy. You know, the idea of, a, you know, I'm going to trust in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. So, you know, as long as I've done that, I'm good. And then I'll kind of do what I want here, but know that I'm taken care of in the future. Our Father is not going to let us go down those roads without prompting us to obedience Or maybe our view of God is someone who's just angry all the time, and he's just looking for a reason to get you. He's just waiting for you to mess up, screw up one more time, so he can cause something bad in your life. That's just not who God is. Does he discipline us? Absolutely. But not out of of control emotion or rage or anger. If we're his children, he disciplines us out of love to bring us back to what is good as he defines it in our lives. Yes, he is our father. And if we've trusted Jesus to be our way into the family, to be adopted, then he is our father and he's our father in heaven. So Jesus says our father in heaven and talks about his locale. Why why remind us of this? Why is this important? What is heaven? What would they have thought of? They would have thought of heaven, yes, as a place, certainly, But more importantly, it's the place where God reigns without opposition. Heaven was the place where God was in total authority, and that authority was demonstrated all the time, everywhere. Now, don't misunderstand. God is ultimately over this earth and all that is happening here. But we don't see his authority exercised directly the way he will one day do it when he restores all things. But in heaven, it's not like that. In heaven, it's completely as God has designed it to be, with no flaw, no rebellion, no going against, no opposition, none of that. And that's where God is. There is complete and total obedience. There is complete and total reverence. Think, and they would have thought of this, when you say, our Father in heaven, what would they have thought of when they heard Jesus teach this? They would have gone back, because most of them knew their Old Testament, As as Jewish people, they would have known this, and they would have gone back to scenes in the Old Testament of heaven, which were pretty few, actually. 
They didn't have a real clear idea, like we don't really have a very clear idea. We have ideas of what heaven is like, but we don't really fully get it. Theirs was even less than ours. And so they would go to places like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is caught up to heaven, and he gets to see the throne room of God, where God is in control, complete and total control as ultimate authority, and there are beings all around him. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, they're recognizing why were they using that term Because what they were saying is unique, 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 different, 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 set apart, set apart, set apart. That's what that word holy means. God is utterly different than we are. And Isaiah realized that as he heard that being said and his response is, I'm in trouble because I don't fit here. I'm messed up. I I have stuff. And here there's no stuff. There's just complete and total obedience to the authority of God. He is in complete control. That's what we think of. That's what they would have thought of when they thought of heaven. So when Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven, he's reminding us that we pray to a God who is very different from us, but at the same time desires to be close to us and is close to us. Our Father, relational closeness in heaven, distance, majesty, glory. And we always need to hold those two things in tension when we approach God, that we don't become too familiar with him like he's our buddy, right? Like, you know, we can, you know, he's just almost too close in that relationship. There's always needs to be that respect for who God is. But at the same time, he is a God who invites us into relationship. So there is a sense of of friendship and familial connection that we can have with God. And we hold those two things in tension. Both are true. A good father is both close and distant. Now, what do I mean by that? Because we would always, I think, define a good father by being close, right? We don't define a good dad by being distant. Here's what I mean by that. A good father is close to his kids. He's encouraging. He's present. He's active. He's doing things with them, whatever along those lines to, to show that and demonstrate that relationship, right? He seeks them out. But at the same time, a good father knows there are times where he has to be the parent, not the buddy. And he needs to be able to say, this was not right. And there is a consequence for this. Because I don't want you to do this again. Not because I'm just over the top, angry, explosive, or not because I just want to punish you. As human beings, we do struggle with these things as parents at times. But God doesn't, right? So there needs to be a distance A little bit of like, we're not going to be buddy-buddy right now. There needs to be correction in your life. And guess what? That child may feel like the parent is more distant in that. They're not, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Encouraging, coming around, oh, you know, the the love that we like to think of. The love takes on a, a hardness to it at times. But we would say that's a good parent. Father, we approach a father who loves us, but is also worthy of our respect. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, when we hear that term, it's not a term we hear often, the word hallowed. We probably think of Halloween, or is it other's name, the other name for it, All Hallows Eve. But what does that really mean? The root of the word hallow, and remember, it's not hollow, it's hallow, okay, H-A-L-L-O-W, means to be holy or set apart. 
It's the idea of, of holiness is wrapped up in that word. So when we say, hallowed be your name, a person's name represented him or her in that day. Jesus prays that God would be known as holy, completely unique, that people would see him as he is. Jesus prays that his father's reputation would be accurately known, that his name would be honored. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be respected and revered as it should be. May it be seen for the reputation that it is. May it not be brought down, but may it be lifted up. May that be what my life represents, what it shows. This is why when I grew up, maybe some of you had similar experiences, but I was certainly taught not to treat God's name lightly. And so we weren't allowed to say things like Jesus Christ as a swear word. That did not go over well in my household. Or even to say, oh my God. Even my gosh was, you know, that was a little questionable because it's a replacement, you know. So, oh my word was the accepted uh, thing you could say in my house. I'm not trying to say those are all right or wrong, but I'm trying to say is the point is why those were the way we were taught was because my parents didn't want us to treat God's name with a lack of respect as something common as something that just could be used in any way, shape, or form. It seems silly at times, quite honestly, but that was what was behind it, because the name represents the person. Is Jesus' name and his reputation, is God's name, his reputation, important to you? Is it important to you? Does it matter to you? Because right in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Of all priorities in my life, is the ultimate priority of my life that you, God, would be seen for who you really are through my life. In whatever way that can happen, does my life demonstrate to others, and even to you, God, how important and worthy of respect you are? How are we representing him? If we are the only Jesus some people will ever experience, how are we presenting him to others? How are we living in such a way as to declare God as totally unique and worthy? A God who won't compromise his perfection for a moment. Are we accurately portraying God that way? You see, he, won't, he can't compromise his character. His character is completely, totally pure and holy. He can't go against that or he wouldn't be God. It's a part of who he is. And yet at times, quite honestly, I almost represent him as one who's willing to compromise on that. Because I, at times, compromise on that. And I demonstrate to the people that to the people who are around me. A God who won't compromise his perfection, but yet also a God who wants to be in relationship. Sometimes we compromise God's holiness when we talk to people about God. We give this impression that he doesn't really care what you do. It doesn't really matter. It's all going to be okay. After all, he loves you. Now, there's some truth in that, but the danger of that is we miss out on who God is. No, God will never compromise his standard. His standard always remains the standard. We don't bring God down to us to make him like us. 
He is holy. He's different. He will always be here. We can't bring him down. But sometimes we act as if, yeah, no, he's more like us than, you know, he's, he's okay. Now, God is always ready to forgive us when we come to him and, and confess our sin and repent. And he's ready always to forgive us. But he is not a God who just winks and says, eh, that's okay. You know, get him next time. He'll lift us up. He'll encourage us when we fall. But again, we need to acknowledge, you know, what I did was wrong. Compared to your holiness, what I did was offensive. And that's when we realize that we need a Savior. When we get to that point of understanding that God is holy and, and how unholy I am, I realize the gap between God and me, and yet God wants to come close to me and be in a relationship. The question is, well, how can that happen? And the answer is Jesus. He is the only way. You can only one who can bridge that gap between the Father and us to bring us into God's family that we can be forgiven and restored. We need to be careful that we do not, in the way we talk or present God, seek to compromise His holiness. No, He is completely and utterly holy. He cannot stand sin in His presence. It must be dealt with. And when it is, He loves to come close. Because he desires to be a father to us. Sometimes we leave out that our sin separates us from a God who lives in heaven and will for eternity if we don't turn to Jesus who paid the consequence for our sin. Remember what Jesus himself said, John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to. So that means we're not with the Father. If I want to get with the Father, if I want to be with the Father, how does that happen? It can only happen through Jesus. To put it another way, no one gets to call God, this holy God who is totally different than us, Father, except by coming through Jesus. That's the way it works. That's the way God has set it up. Because God's desire is to be our Father. A good father who provides for us, who takes care of us, but will not compromise his holiness and who he is. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We haven't even got to ask him for anything yet. And guess what? We're not for another two weeks. <laughs> so just hang in there. We'll get there. But I think it's so important that we start and we understand what it is that Jesus was trying to teach us. Who it is that we're coming to. What can we expect? And what does he demand of us? And he has every right to. And yet at the same time, isn't it amazing that we would get to call him Father? The God of this universe has welcomed us to say, you can call me Father. Because I desire a relationship with you. In fact, that's why my son came. To make a way for you to be in relationship with me. Let's pray together. Father, so much is wrapped up in that word. And you, above all of us, understand that from our earthly perspective, some of us struggle with that term. We have not perhaps had good experiences in our lives with our human fathers. None of us as parents are perfect by any means.
We struggle. We make mistakes. We compromise. We, we fall too far on the side of demanding respect or, or seeking to come alongside and, and, and love in softer terms. And we, we don't always get it right. And so when we look to any human example of a parent or a father, it will always fall short. But when we call you our father, help us to understand that you're a perfect father who has made promises that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will be present with us, that you will bring comfort and peace into situations. No, you will not give us everything we want. And yes, you will do things we don't understand. Even human fathers and parents do things that their children don't understand that are for their own good at times. But you call us to trust you to lean into you in those times, to find in you what we truly need, comfort, peace, perspective, strength, all those you offer to us. And yet, at the same time, you are a God who is completely and utterly holy. You are different than us. And may that just make us all the more appreciative that a God who is so different than us would pay attention to us we are not as special as we think we are, but in your eyes, in your eyes we are special. You created us, you formed us for a purpose, and ultimately the, the foundation of that purpose is to live in relationship with you. So thank you for making a way for that to be possible through your son Jesus. And as last week we celebrated, we remembered first the the death of Jesus on the cross, and then celebrated his resurrection, we are once again in awe of who you are and what you do and how you are accomplishing your plan in ways that none of us would have thought of and none of us would have dreamt up. Help us to trust you as our Father. Help us to live in such a way that your name is lifted up, that your name is honored and shown the, the proper respect because you are worthy of our praise, of our adoration, of our obedience. But you ask for all of that in the context of relationship. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as we come to you even this week in prayer, may we approach you, know who it is that we're talking to, and approach you in a way that, that is due who you are but also with the confidence that you invite us to come into your presence. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, who made it possible, I pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing the song together?